We are outdoor ladies who hunt, shoot, and fish, all while working in conservation and chasing kids. I am Julia Plugi with the Nebraska Game and Parks Commission. I'm Rachel Alice with the Iowa Department of Natural Resources. And I'm Tana Fancher with the Kansas Department of Wildlife Parks. Follow us on our outdoor adventures. Welcome back to She Goes Outdoors. Hello, Tana. How are you? I am so good, Julia. How are you? I'm doing well. Uh, we don't have Rachel today with us. She is at Iowa's Becoming an Outdoor Woman program. We're just so super duper excited that we are back in person doing these major events. Uh, a little bit of a whirlwind, but we're catching up. But speaking of in-person events, you and Rachel uh, met up just a couple weeks ago in Oklahoma. What were you doing in Oklahoma? And, you know, just share the experience. Yeah, that was so much fun. And Julia, we missed you. We wish you could have been there with us. So uh, Rachel and I went on a little trip out to Broken Arrow, Oklahoma for the National R3 Symposium. And as our listeners know, R3 stands for Recruitment, Retention, Reactivation. So we met with professionals in the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, in uh, state fish and wildlife agencies, as well as professionals within the outdoor industry, some of our partners, NGO groups, nonprofits, et cetera. And just had a really wonderful, robust conversation about what it's going to take to get more people out into the outdoors and to keep them involved. Um, so a lot of really great data-driven conversations, including um, what true mentorship looks like and do people even like the term mentorship? Uh, Matt Dunphy with the Wildlife Management Institute talked a little bit about that and, you know, is instructor a better term? So we got some information there. Um, we had some wonderful regional meetings as well. And we did a really fun activity called our three minutes. So in our three minutes, the um, all of our state agencies and partners got an opportunity to come and just in three minutes, talk about all the fun projects that we're up to. And it was a really condensed, like super lightning round version of um, the presentations we would normally give. So Rachel and I had a lot of fun and Julia was there in spirit as well. Uh, I was here in Nebraska hosting an outdoor discovery program at our Fort Kearney State Recreation Area there that week. Uh, instead of, you know, being in Oklahoma, I was there, I guess, maybe chasing, not chasing, hosting 2,000 kids in the fourth and fifth and sixth graders. And they were just, it's just so exciting to see them out fishing and uh, shooting some archery and kayaking absolutely it's so nice to get back to these in-person events to be able to have bow to be able to have events like you were talking about and to get together professionally at these r3 symposiums again um everybody's hit the ground running because now that we're back to in-person events we're no longer um you know just focused on maybe crunching data or trying to do online events or podcasts now we're back to being out in the field so everybody's in hyperdrive but really good uh, good spirits overall and lots of really great data coming out of the pandemic i guess is a silver lining so awesome, awesome to learn yeah and it was these these events it's these in-person events where the the uh thought the discussion of she goes outdoors came from so that's that's why we do them we are always open to to new topics new suggestions and quite frankly it's the suggestions that come from our listeners or or our other guests 
uh, that have come up with those super cool ideas. And honestly, they're probably way cooler than what Tana, Rachel, and I even come up with. And so uh, this is just right there is just a shout out that if you uh, come up with a topic you want us to uh, research, discuss, maybe you know someone out there that is super knowledgeable of an outdoor uh, skill or uh, knowledge, send it our way because that is where we come up with our weekly topics. So, you know, with that said, a previous She Goes Outdoors guest, Sarah Nevison, suggested that we talk about the American burrowing beetle. My first instant reaction was like, an insect? Why do we want to talk about an insect? But I know Sarah is a wealth of knowledge. Uh, so cool. I, she's just like, she sent me this long list of super cool ideas. And so I was like, you know what? Let's do it. Let's, let's find out. And so I wanted to investigate a little further into the topic and come to find out this burium beetle is by far more than just a bug. So this is our first episode uh, dedicated to an insect. Our world is full of billions and billions of insects. So, you know, really probably shame on us for not ta- taking the time before now to spend on our tiny friend. At this, um, I did some research ahead of time. Wow. I'm, I'm really glad that Sarah suggested this conversation and I'm looking forward to interviewing today's guest. So before we jump into the topic itself, let's introduce our guest, Allison Ludwig. Allison is a graduate research assistant at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln with the agronomy and horticulture area. So Allison, tell us about yourself and how you ended up thinking about beetles. Yeah, sure. Well, thank you for having me on today. Um, So yeah, I'm Allison. I am from Ohio originally. When I was there, I volunteered a lot with the Nature Conservancy, actually doing prescribed burns. And that kind of got me interested in just burn ecology in general. So then I ended up going to Nevada for a couple seasons as a vegetation tech to do vegetation monitoring on um, lands that had been burned by wildfire. Then I finally, you know, after being out in the desert of Nevada for a couple summers, I was like, I think I'm ready to go back and get my master's degree. So I was looking into master's programs and I knew I kind of wanted it to be something that was tied to fire ecology. And so when I found the program here at Nebraska, a lot of prescribed fire that we're doing in the state for restoration purposes, I was like, okay, this is really cool. And I was like, it was attached to this beetle and I looked it up and I was like, okay, well, I'm not usually an insect person, but this is a pretty cool beetle. And it was hilarious. My my parents were like, when I told them that I had accepted this position, they're like, you're studying an insect? You hate insects. You hate bugs. Um, and I was like, this is true. I, I do dislike spiders a lot. <laughs> but I was like, I think I can handle the beetle because it's only got six leg- legs instead of eight legs. Uh, and so then I started here in Nebraska and it's been just awesome. And the beetle has been really like, uh, just like kind of helped me keep going through the program because it's just this interesting interesting beetle that's really cool and I just like want to do my best work to help help the beetle out. Allison that's awesome and really quick I do want to plug um, some of those prescribed burns and research projects you were talking about those are so fascinating to get involved with. I went to school at K-State and unfortunately though I had the opportunity I never did end up going out and experiencing one of those burns myself so I just want to encourage our listeners if you're interested in learning more about like our prairie ecosystems and about the role of fires in maintaining those habitats um, 
reach out to, you know, maybe your local university or um, reach out to some of your partner groups and see if there's anything you can get involved with because those are really great learning and volunteer opportunities and um, you'll see a lot of really interesting stuff. But back to Beatles. Great point. Great point, Tana. So Allison, will you please just start by describing the, the beetle? I mean, what does it look like? Is it, you know, if I were to come running across this beetle, what would it, what would I, signs would I look for to know what it is? Yeah. Okay. Um, so it's actually the largest carrying beetle in North America. So when you see it, it's pretty shockingly large. It's probably like about the size of your thumb for the, the bigger ones. There are some small little guys, but the big healthy ones are like a thumb size, I'd say. They are black and kind of this reddish orange. And they're uh, so they have this like uh, like red patches on their wings and the rest is all black. And then on their back, like their shield on their back, it's called the pronotum. Uh, that's all red. And so it's like this big red spot right on their back. And so that really helps them pop out when we're looking for them um, out in the field. That's pretty unique within the beetle because with that red spot. Hey, Allison, I'm curious, as far as appearance, do American do American burying beetles exhibit any sexual dimorphism between male and females in the species? There is a little bit of, like, we can tell the difference just by looking at them. Uh-huh. Um, Size-wise, usually there's there's overlap, but usually the males are a little bit bigger. But um, the real way to tell if it's a male or female is their facial markings. So on that little beetly face, if you look at it, um, they've got some red markings. So they all have a red patch right on their forehead between their eyes. But then just above their mandibles, there's a little red patch that's either a triangle shape or like a rectangle shape. A big rectangle rectangle shape means it's a male and the smaller triangle shape means it's a female. And so that's how in the field we can just look at their faces and we're like, okay, you're a guy and you're a girl. That's fascinating. So many insects have a purpose. Like I suppose all, you know, I mean, we could say all insects have a purpose, but though there's those insects that uh, really stand out to us as humans, you know, bees pollinate, spiders eat mosquitoes, uh, worms aerate, but it seems that this beetle is almost like a superhero in our world. Tell us why this insect is so important to the ecosystem. The really neat thing about them is, um, so they're carrion beetles, and that means they uh, go and they kind of search out dead animals to eat and just kind of uh, use for their life cycle. They actually will, they'll find a piece of carrion, so like a dead bird or a mouse, and they'll actually bury it underground. So that's how they get their name, American Burying Beetles, is because they're burying dead animals. It's kind of interesting. Um, they'll remove all the fur or feathers. They'll kind of roll it into a ball. And they can uh, secrete these um, secretions that are preservative and um, coat the carrion ball in that to help preserve it so that way it doesn't rot away as quickly. And uh, so what they do after they bury it is they create this brood chamber underground for their, their young. So they lay their eggs in the soil and the young will eventually emerge and the parents actually stick around to help take care of them, which is pretty rare in beetles. Um, they don't usually do parental care like that. And so they, they stick around and they feed off of of that carrion ball and then eventually you know the the larvae go into the soil to pupate and then that's when the uh, parents leave and then later in the summer we they uh, emerge as new beetle adults 
But so that that whole process, that life cycle is uh, really important to the ecosystem. They help cycle nutrients through the ecosystem. Um, They're known to enrich soil nutrient content. And so they're kind of almost like nature's garbage men because, you know, we don't want all these dead animals just staying staying out there to rot. They kind of help get it into the system faster, which is really neat. I wish you guys could see Allison's smiling face as she describes this life cycle of like having your babies within freshly, I guess, preserved corpse. So (laughs) if that tells you anything about Allison and how cool she is, but that's just so fascinating. And like you said, I never would have thought of a beetle as being like maternal in any way and having a lot of parental care toward um, their offspring. So that's so fascinating. Is there any, is there like any videos out there that they've done some time lapse or so that you can like watch the process? Honestly, I'm not sure. I've never seen any videos of that whole process. There should be, if there aren't, there yeah. should be videos because this would be super cool. I would geek out <laughs> watching it too. That would be yeah. super cool. I mean, we'd probably speed it up a little bit because I'm sure it takes some time in their life, but I think it'd be fun to watch. Yeah, and it, it is really cool just because it's like two little beetles, well, little from our perspective, can actually, they work together, they work together to bury this thing, this animal that's bigger than both of them to combine underground. So it's like, they're kind of like how you said superheroes in the sense of like, they're really strong to be able to do that, just the two of them. Territory too, are these two beetles fairly, fairly territorial over that, um, you know, decomposing house that they've gotten together or will they live in more of a colony situation? Uh, yeah, they're pretty territorial actually. So when there is a piece of carrion available and if a lot of beetles come like flocking to it because they smell that mm, yum, you know, corpse, <laughs> um, <laughs> they actually will fight one another until like they either kill one another or they're, the rest just kind of run away or fly away because they're like, okay, I, I can't win this fight. Um, so there's like this dominant male-female pair that like kind of claim the car Yeah, they will defend it from other beetles. They don't share. (laughs) Is there any preference as far as like the type of carcass they inhabit, whether it's a bird, a mammal? Does it matter? Pretty much any vertebrate is suitable. Um, They tend to go for mammals and birds. Um, I think that's more so just because they, for a, to create a brood chamber, they need a, a piece of carrion that's big enough. So usually between um, 100 and 200 grams is like like ideal for them. Um, so it's a little bit on the bigger side. So that's why they would prefer like a larger rodent or like um, a bird. Wow. Okay. So the American burying beetle is actually listed as threatened rather than endangered. And that's because it was recently downlisted during the Trump administration, which was actually pretty shocking to some. So what are some of the threats that American burying beetles face and like what's causing a decrease in their population? Yeah, great question. Uh, just some background. So the American bearing beetle, it used to range across the entire eastern U.S. So from the panhandle of Florida, all the way up the coast, up into parts of Canada, then down uh, to the west, all the way up pretty much to like mid-Nebraska, mid-Kansas. And that was the extent of their range. And then in, listed as endangered in 1989 because they had noticed like they we could only find like populations in Oklahoma and then in like an island in the Atlantic, like just off the coast of Rhode Island. And that was the only populations they knew about. And so that's why it was listed as uh, endangered in 1989. So that also, though, helps gain a lot of interest in the beetle. So a lot of people started going out and sampling, trying 
trying to find more of them because we're like, we don't know where they, where they are. They're just gone. And so through the nineties, we found a lot more populations um, here in Nebraska. We found a couple populations, one in the Les Canyons area, which is just South of North Platte. And then um, up in the Sand Hills as well, um, going into South Dakota a bit. And then the Oklahoma population has kind of expanded a bit. Um, so most of Eastern Oklahoma, you can find ABB. Um, and that kind of bleeds into parts of Arkansas and Texas and um, also Kansas in the Flint Hills, there's population. And so that's kind of what led it to downlisted to just threatened in 2020 is because there had been a lot more populations found since 1989. But yeah, back to the reason why why they uh, were in decline in the first place. Uh, they weren't sure what it was. They thought it was actually originally they thought that the beetle was a uh, like an old growth forest specialist. Um, so they required like, like deep soils from old forests. Um, and so that the deforestation that happened, um, early on in, in the 1900s in the Eastern U S was like the cause of their decline, but that didn't really track because they were still finding beetles in areas that here in, you know, Nebraska, Kansas, there's not really ever been that much forest and we have plenty of beetles in you know, Oklahoma. We've got uh, grasslands here and the, that's where the beetles are. Um, so they sort of decided, okay, well, it's a habitat generalist. So it's not the deforestation that did it. And then they were thinking, well, maybe it's like pesticides like DDT, um, but that didn't really track either because areas that like uh, areas that had been have, having DDT had other species of carrying beetles around. So it would have killed them all, not just the B- ABB. And areas that didn't ever have um, DDT also had lost their ABBs. So it was not that. So after like a couple, like at least a decade of like just science, basically, they kind of came to the conclusion that it was this combination of factors, um, partially habitat loss and fragmentation. Um, so like cropland turning, so turning prairies into cropland, it, it reduces their their prey um, abundance. And so that, so habitat loss from cropland conversion of prairie, that's a major cause for their decline. And that is linked to the decreases in their prey. So ideally sized carrying species like upland game birds, others like larger rodents, and even like the passenger pigeon, which has been uh, extinct, but it was like the perfect size for the uh, ABB. So all these like losses of um, carrying, uh, potential carrying sources have kind of cause there's like just just, um, a lack of food sources for them because finding a dead animal in the wild for a beetle it's it's kind of a boom and bust resource like it's either there or it's not it's there in abundance or it's not at all so it's just um less food is available and then also that means an increase in competition so other beetles are trying to fight for the for less resources as well as um some vertebrate scavengers um so like crows uh, possums, uh, coyotes, they all will c- compete for that carrion as well. And so it's just less food, but more mouths that want to feed. So it's all around. It's just tough. So that's kind of a long answer, but. No, that's great. And Allison, I read too that these beetles can actually sniff out and I use air quotes for that, but they can sniff out that carrion for up to two miles. Is that right? Yeah, that's, yeah, that's right. I mean, they've actually been known to travel like in one night, they've been known to travel up to, oh gosh, I think it was 12 kilometers. 
uh, which in miles is like what eight to ten miles. <laughs> wow, for us. Um, that was wind assisted, but mm. but um, yeah, they they are pretty strong flyers and they can travel pretty far um, in in trackings uh, carrying. So what is that process like? I mean, I assume it's not like the process I would go through if I smelled a, da- a dead animal and wanted to go check it out, like sniff, sniffed it with my nose. Is it like chemoreceptors in their face or feet, antenna? Do you know? It's, yeah, their antenna. They have these antenna balls. And that's how they, uh, the, the receptors for that smell. And that's how they track it down. So it's not like how we smell. So it's hard to understand. <laughs> You did an amazing job at describing it, like the process and and why they're um, uh, threatened. And I can, you just, it's kind of just our whole ecosystem just kind of continues to, you know, circle around each other. It's just, it's a lot to take in. But, you know, when we talk about our ecosystem being threatened in different ways, and now here we are talking about carrying capacity uh, and, and that fight for the same resources, whether it's an insect or um, a, a raptor literally fighting over that same that same dead animal. It's it's a lot to absorb, and you did a really good job describing it. Thanks. Yeah, thank you. I don't know that we've really talked about your the actual research project, your <laughs> job. Tell us about that and how it um, it's involved with the EBB. My project was originally they have all this data. Um, and they really wanted someone to work with it. So Game and Parks had been sampling um, the population of the ABB out in the Les Canyons since 2007. So they had like over this like a decade of beetle monitoring data and no one had done anything with it. And so they were like, we really want someone to work with this data. So I was like, okay, I'll take that on. <laughs> um, and that was really cool. And um, I was able to also add a couple uh, aspects from my own background to it. So I, um, the main chapter is the ABB. And so we're looking at it's changing um, abundance over time in the Les Canyons region, um, both geographically. So like, where is it abundant now versus back in 2007? Um, you know, has it changed geographically? Has it, or it, has it maybe expanded into new areas of the Les Canyons? The kind of spatial scale of um, land coverage changes in that area. So from 2007 to 2019, we're looking at changes in cropland cover, uh, forbin grasses, tree cover, and litter cover. And the reason is because that area has been um, undergoing a lot of conversion from prairie and, and rangeland to uh, this uh, woody cover. So by uh, Eastern red cedar is the is the invading species there. And it's converting all of the, the prairie into just kind of really dense canopy forest. Um, and we were like, well, is this impacting the beetle? Um, and on top of that, that landscape to sort of um, manage for that woody encroachment, a lot of the landowners there have been banding together and doing a lot of prescribed burning. Um, And so it's like this really cool landscape that's undergoing tons of change and upheaval. And so we wanted to see like, well, how is it responding to woody encroachment? How's the beetle responding to uh, the prescribed fire? Uh, Is there um, 
does it prefer any type of land cover over another, um, things like that. And then on top of that, since I've always, that's, that's where the fire ecology comes in. I was like, okay, this is kind of a cool landscape. I can, I can do something with my interest in fire ecology there. So I added in, um, a couple chapters on just soil characteristics and vegetation characteristics, um, on these prescribed burn areas. So it's kind of like the, the research is sort of like a broad, like the whole ecoregion, like from the beetle to the soil to the plants it's this like broad look at how it's all changing over time yeah when you were uh talking about the eastern red cedar and then i was like okay this is going back to her prescribed fire experience (laughs) now i'm seeing the connection that's awesome yeah it is cool um i'm just i was so happy to just find something that was kind of like because i've always had broad interests and so it was like i get to have like like all of these different sampling techniques that I get to do and talk about all these different things this broad ecology instead of just like focusing on one really, really narrow um, aspect, like one species of insect. So I, I like that broad view of like a landscape because I feel like it helps us understand the whole system better. And if you're not familiar with the area uh, she's talking about, it's basically, if you pull up your map, uh, near North Platte, right? Oh, well, I'm actually Lincoln, but North Platte is the, the study. study that the we stu- I'm sorry. To. Yep. Yep. The study uh, is near, near North, North Platte, Platte, Nebraska. Yep. Okay. So, Allison, you talked about your research in broad terms, and it sounds so fascinating, but I've got to know. So I come from a fisheries background and I know what it's like to um, try to capture and study, measure, et cetera, fish. What does that look like when you're trying to search out beetles to research? Yeah, so that's great. A great question because I, you need to have some pictures or videos of what those those buckets look like. So um, it's, it's kind of, like it's pretty, it's to be blunt, it's pretty gross. <laughs> So what we do is we um, we bury these buckets, like five gallon buckets, in the ground across the landscape, and we throw in some soil just so that, you know it's like the, a nice environment for the beetles to be in. And then for the bait to draw them to these traps, um, we have these aged pieces of carrion. So usually like lab rats that we buy, and then we stick them in a bucket in the sun, like sealed bucket in the sun for like five days to make them really nice and ripe yeah (laughs) yeah and then we throw them in those buckets and then we sample for about a week and like the first couple days the smell's not too bad but by the end of the week uh it's it's, the smell is is nightmare fuel like i don't know if i could do that for like ever like just sampling (laughs) beetles every day for the whole summer i don't know man it's it's a lot of smells and gross stuff Oh, wow. So the beetles basically will, you know, sniff that out. We say in air quotes, but sense that and come to the area and then they fall into the buckets kind of like a trap. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, the, there's a, a lid on the buckets, but there's like about a one inch gap so they can crawl in and then they, it's like a pitfall. So they fall into the bucket that's buried in the ground and then they can't get out because the lid, they'll try to fly out, but they'll just, you know, bash their heads on the lid and fall back in. Um, but it is interesting when we take those lids off in the mornings when we're sampling, um, they immediately like the beetles will be like, oh, we're free and they'll try to fly away. So you kind of have to like use your hands to like bat them back down, like stay in the bucket till we can count you. And then so what is that? Um, what information are you taking from those beetles? Are you taking sex, um, length? What information are you getting off those? 
Yeah. So, um, yeah, when we have an ABB, because we actually ca- we capture other types of carrying beetles as well, other species. Um, we don't really care about them as much. We, we keep a tally of them and what species, but we don't do any measurements of stuff on that. So we only take measurements of the American bearing beetles. Um, so we sex them with their, you know, the facial markings. We try to tell if they're a young one or an old one. So the old ones start to get their colors is faded. It's less bright and vibrant and they're usually dirtier and they oftentimes have like pieces missing. So like a leg here or there, or like, yeah, they're just damaged because they've gone, they've, you know, they've gone through it. They've seen some stuff. <laughs> and so they're the old ones and they're, you know, because we, we sample in August and by the end of that, of the season, those old ones are going to actually be dead and only the, the new, the new brood will be alive by the end of the season. Um, so we, so after we sex them and then age them, we, um, we measure their width at the pronotum, which is that back shield on them. And then also the length from tip to tip and also from uh, mandible to the end of their elytra, which are the wing casings. And then finally, we um, actually mark them with a B tag. So we have to glue this little tag onto their um, wing casing. So that way, if we capture them again, we can kind of keep track of like where we caught them, if it traveled or not. And then we end up releasing them a few, like a few hundred meters away from the trap. Has your research showed that they've evolved in their structure, their body structure, any, um, you know, obviously because they've had to, uh, maybe make some accommodations for the lifestyle that with the ecosystem change um, have, has research showed that they've evolved in any different way for survival? I can't say for sure. I, I could say though that they seem to be able to adapt based off of what's available. So they aren't necessarily a specialist one way or another. They kind of just fill a niche wherever they can. And since they are like the largest carrying beetle that does help them with competitors, um, the only thing is they, they can't really compete against, um, you know, the vertebrate scavengers because you know, those are the big guys, but they do adapt just based off of where they are in their range. So here in Nebraska, for example, they primarily live in grassland areas, but actually in parts of Oklahoma and um, in their former range down in the Southeast, they were known to ha- uh, inhabit more like oak hickory forests that had a, a, a more open canopy and a, and a less dense understory. And so they definitely can adapt based off of just what is available in, in the ecosystem. So does anything eat them? Or are they kind of at the top of the food chain within their their species? <laughs> yeah. So uh, no other beetles would really eat them or like insects. I suppose a really big spider, if it caught one in its web, it would try to take it out. <laughs> but the vertebrates are known to eat them. They, there's been a few sightings of like, let's see, I think it was a leopard frog eating one and then an opossum eating one. And I assume like if if they're buried inside a piece of uh, carrion, a dead animal, and like say... Um, a uh, vulture or something comes along and starts eating, they're probably not going to be too picky about what they no. eat, you know? So the vulture might just eat a beetle on accident and be like, well, you know, extra protein. I'm envisioning the movie Lion King right now when uh, Timon and Pumbaa are introducing Simba to the insect world. I don't know why. I just like have that in my mind right now. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. Well, luckily that that looks a lot that more appetizing than what it really looks like. <laughs> yes, yes. That's why I had to envision that. <laughs> yeah, that <was> good vision. <laughs> so Allison, I have to ask too, as far as like 
threats or potential dangers when you're researching? Like, obviously you're out in the elements. And so there are the typical threats you would see, you know, you're stomping around in the prairie or in the woods, you might encounter snakes, et cetera, whatever. But as far as handling these beetles, are there mandibles capable of delivering any sort of bite or pinch to a human? Yes. <laughs> yes, Uh-oh. they can bite and they do bite. Now, when I'm handling them, I usually have gloves on, um, like like latex gloves or rubber gloves. And so they don't, they can't break my skin with the gloves on. But if I were to let them really go at it on like just skin, they could break the skin. But it's not, they don't have any sort of venom or poison. So like, you definitely want to wash it though. I would definitely wash it if it bites you <laughs> because it's been inside a dead animal and that's kind of gross don't want it to get infected. They, they nibble, but they're not really like dangerous. That is good to know. If I ever encounter one out in the field, I will keep that in mind. Uh, so what about other interesting adventures that you've had while doing your research and out in the field? Any fun stories or anything you want to share with us? I mean, there's so much to share. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I will say for the, the trap buckets specifically, just an ex, just a bit of knowledge or wisdom. It, you want to, if you're lucky, you'll get traps that don't have too many flies because if the flies find it, they'll lay their eggs and the flies aren't the worst part. The worst for me anyways, the worst part is when the maggots start uh, like hatching and then they're all over the place. And so I'm like, I'm trying to like pick out some beetles from this pile of like soil that has maggots just everywhere. And like then this, you know, piece of carrion. So like, you know, cross your fingers that you don't get flies because those guys are really gross. The stuff (laughs) that our researchers do to save our ecosystem. No kidding. Absolutely. Yeah. I'll stick with fish. (laughs) So Allison, um, if our listeners are, you know, we have wonderful listeners and I know they're everywhere on the spectrum between this is disgusting. I'm turning off this podcast and this is so cool. Like, how can I see a beetle? Uh, Is it okay if our listeners wanted to set up one of those pitfall traps in their own yard and bury a bucket and see what kind of beetles they can get even in their backyard? So uh, that's kind of tricky because it, so when it was endangered, when it was federally endangered, I'd say no, but I mean, obviously now it's just threatened. Um, And if you're not in the range of the ABB, like, so I here in Lincoln, I've thrown out a couple buckets here in Lincoln just for fun. Didn't get any ABB. I was, I was like, you know, you never know, but um, I'd say for most people the listening, go for it. You're going to get all sorts of stuff. You might get other species of carrying beetles. If you get an ABB, that's really cool. And maybe like report that to like your local or or, uh, uh, extension or university because they would be interested, especially if you're in a place that we don't know that there's ABB. I I know Iowa, uh, if we find ABB there, that would be really cool. Um, Missouri and stuff like that. So yeah, I'd say go for it just for fun. I mean, science. Um, I'd say it's just, you know, it's your own backyard. Might as well see what's in it, you know, throw, throw, bury a bucket. Just make sure, I'd say make sure it's protected from the sun and from rain because sometimes sometimes buckets will flood and kill all the little guys in there. And so just don't let it get flooded. That's your major concern. And yeah, get a nice piece of uh, carrot. You can use roadkill. I've actually went to the butcher and got some scraps of meat and just let that age and throw that in a bucket. Um, so yeah, just DIY, you know, and see what you catch because, you know, you're going to get something cool. I, I found some pretty scary insects. I found a really long centipede in one. It was like 
this like horrific centipede um that was like cool cool but scary and i was like i was like i can't i can't touch that um there's all sorts of cool stuff i've gotten salamanders in buckets frogs uh like toads uh there's all sorts of stuff that you will catch that's not necessarily even a beetle so i think it's worth it for just to see what is in your backyard. I was going to say, have have the four-legged critters, uh, have they got into the buckets and, and I guess, destroyed that that catch because they want what's inside too? Sometimes, like, like the one that had the centipede, um, there was a lot of, like, parts of beetles in that bucket. Like, he didn't, the centipede didn't get all of the beetles, um, but there was definitely fewer beetles in that bucket than in previous days. Um, so, and there was like legs and wings and stuff all over. So we figured like the centipede had a meal, but he, he couldn't eat the whole bucket because he's just one centipede. Um, <laughs> okay. But yeah, like, yeah, the toads, they'll definitely try to eat some. It's, it happens though. Um, the worst is when it's like a larger scavenger, like a coyote. Yeah. Uh, they yep. can actually dig them, dig the buckets up. And that, that really does ruin everything. Oh, duh. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But if it's just like one little four-legged thing, like an amphibian or something, it's not the end of the world. But Hey, Allison, if folks are going to try this in their own backyard or even are just interested in um, identifying insects and getting to know the insect community near their house a little bit better, are there any um, apps or like identification guides or anything like that you recommend for beginners? That's that's a tough one because I don't use those really. I don't use those apps and stuff. I hear iNaturalist is a good one. I don't know if they do insects. Yeah, they do. Uh, iNaturalist, I think, does insects. Okay, yeah, I'd say probably iNaturalist. And I know there's, I guess, like called bugsguide.com has like pretty thorough um, pictures of like all sorts of species. Also, there's like a lot of communities on social media. So uh, on like Facebook, I'm actually part of an insect identification group that will just, you know, you you share the picture, you tell them the location, and usually you can get a pretty good ID. Um, That's true for like plant ID as well. So I'd say just like look at what groups are around and then check with your um, like extension agencies because a lot of times they'll have like little like pamphlets or like little um, books that have uh, local species and that would be like I always like enjoy collecting those little books because they're just fun and have pretty pictures. Absolutely I know I think we grew up with the Peterson field guide at my house when I was younger. I remember looking through all the pictures of all the cool insects so um, you know when in doubt jump on Amazon visit your local bookstore and support local and um, just start flipping through guides and you'll kind of find what style you like if you're more motivated by photographs or if you'd rather have a more text heavy guide uh, that has more information find what works for you but there's lots of really fun resources out there and of course share those with your kids share those with your friends family community it may seem like a really strange birthday gift at first can be a really incredible world out there so share that with others if someone wants to just find some additional information about uh, the abb where could we draw? I mean, my thesis is out there. So oh, cool. if you were to search for, for Allison Ludwig yeah. um, and uh, UNL, University of Nebraska-Lincoln, and then like either American Bearing Beetle or just master's thesis it's all up there on the in the digital commons cool but that's kind of it's dense reading it's not like um not good for you know nighttime just chilling out sort of reading there's um definitely though some good sources i mean just like i'd say even just online you can just google and find a lot about the american bearing beetle um, because it's in a lot of attention because it was um listed and so even just um like federal agent like um online federal agencies have 
pretty thorough information out. And I know here, if you're in Lincoln, I know that they have an exhibit in Morrill Hall, which is the state, the Nebraska State Natural History Museum. There is an exhibit that has a few ABB like um, specimens. So if you want to go see it in person, you could go up. That's for Lincoln though. Sorry about everybody else. (laughs) Hey, I invite everyone to go to that. That is a super cool museum to check out things. Everything from mammoths to now ABB. And I know when I was doing a little research about today's topic, I found some information on the Center for Biological Diversity from their website. So if you're curious about checking that out, that's biologicaldiversity.org. And you can get on there and search for the American burying beetle. And they've got a super cute little profile. They've got um, tips for how you can take action to help these beetles and kind of more about their campaign to support them. Cool information there. And on that note, Allison, um, what can our listeners do to protect this important species in our ecosystem or to help conserve them? One of the biggest things you can do, it's it's indirect, but it it really does help the ABB. It was just to be support. Upland, upland game birds, um, because that's a huge resource for the ABB. And upland game birds also share a lot of habitat similarities with what the ABB prefers. Because I know this, you know, for our listeners, they are outdoors women and some of them maybe hunters. And so that's just like anything um, supporting conservation for game birds would actually really help the ABB. Um, additionally, if you happen to be like in Nebraska or Kansas or Oklahoma, and you're dealing with woody plant encroachment, that will definitely help with the ABB, um, especially if it's Eastern red cedar or one of those other um, sort of like denser sort of woody species. If it's oak hickory forest, the, the ABB will, won't mind that too much, but maintenance, I totally forgot the word. Like a prescribed? Um, yeah, like prescribed burns, mechanical removal, mm-hmm. um, treatments mm-hmm. like that to just restore prairie or protect prairie from getting converted. Um, that's a huge help to the ABB as well. And I mean, this is a crazy one. If you really, 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 if you, you are out there where ABB live, um, so like in parts of Oklahoma or Kansas or Nebraska, you can throw some food out there for them. <laughs> I know that sounds crazy, but that's what they do on um, out in the east on those that island. So it's Nantucket Island and Block Island are where there's some like remnant populations. And they occasionally will go out and actually put out food for the ABB. They'll just like throw carrion out there, I guess, for them to just help support the populations. Um, so if you really care about the ABB, and you want to, you could throw out, you know, carrion to just try to give them some food. And you could also go and see what is what goes and eats it because that would be interesting. Like after I harvest um, a turkey or a deer, leaving that, leaving what I don't take out with me would be supportive of them as well. Oh, definitely. It would, I mean, it would support the whole ecosystem, but um, if, yeah, if you're in an area where there's ABB, there's definitely a good chance that they could feed off of that. It might not be enough to like create a brood off of, but you're still feeding them because they still have to also eat, you know, they can't, they don't always make a brood chamber. They just sometimes want to nibble some dead animals. (laughs) That's awesome. Okay. Rachel's not here to get on her soapbox. So I got to represent. You said a couple really awesome things, Allison, and I want to bring light to those. You said lots of awesome things. We can't thank you enough for joining us today. But one of those is that in the human world, death can be a scary and taboo topic. And it is so incredible learning about species like this insect that have taken death and almost put a positive spin on it. And, uh, you know, seeing that circle of life right in front of our eyes within the system is so, so cool. 
you know, yes, death happens and it can be a very sad thing, but also new life can be born and benefit from it. So I think that's really impactful and a great thing to teach your kids about um, the way our ecosystem works in these cyclical formats. So very cool. And I appreciate you pointing this out to us. Another awesome thing you said is that we can support this beetle by supporting uh, research and management done for upland game birds. That is super cool. And I definitely want to rant about that a little bit because it can be mm, a misconception that fish and wildlife agencies are only focused on game animals and management that directly benefits game animals. And while some of our management does benefit game animals and is focused in that realm, um, it is habitat based, it's habitat focused. And so by doing so, we can benefit species like the American bearing beetle and like many, many other species. So um, when you buy a hunting license, when you buy a fishing license, those sales go back to supporting that conservation of a broad range of species. So even if you're not a hunter or an angler, but you're interested in giving back, consider buying a hunting or fishing license, consider buying a duck stamp, things like that all go back to habitat and benefit larger ecosystems. So thanks for letting me rant about that. Really cool comments, Allison. I appreciate the correlation there. Yeah, thanks for that insight. I I totally agree with what Awesome. Parting thoughts for our listeners before we sign off today. To get maybe like more philosophical following your vein of thought and everything. It's like like the idea of like every component of the ecosystem like kind of plays a role. Because I think some people will be like, well, it's just a bug, you know, why should I care? And I'm like, I mean, yeah, it is just a bug, but it's like this cog in the entire machine out there of the ecosystem. And, you know, it's like if we start losing one cog, maybe it's not a problem. But when we start losing a couple more cogs and then like maybe a a couple dozen cogs, then that that system's going to maybe break down. And so I just enjoy just this research because it lets me look at the ecosystem and how everything kind of fits together and um, cycles through. And so I guess just I'm happy I could share that with everyone and I hope that they you know got something out of this podcast absolutely beautiful sentiments Allison thank you all right Tana wrap it up will do and to our listeners we'll be sure to post pictures of that American burying beetle and we'll also link Allison's research paper so you guys can read a little bit more about that if you've had coffee and you're wide awake um if not feel free to check out some of those other maybe easier reading um opportunities if it's late night and uh, you're just curious about learning more but again Allison thank you so much we hope to chat with you again soon this has been a fantastic conversation yeah thank you so much for having me it was amazing yay all right y'all um you know the drill thank you so much for tuning in and being a part of the she goes outdoors family be sure to like and subscribe to our podcast to make sure that you get updates every time we release a new episode as you guys know uh, rachel and julia and i can get a little bit crazy busy sometimes and though we try to release episodes on a very regular schedule occasionally we fall off the wagon there just a little bit because we are very busy so be sure to subscribe and that way you get alerts right to your phone anytime a new episode drops if you like what you hear be sure to share us with your friends and family and make sure they know about the wonderful things going on in the she goes outdoors community rate us and let us know how we're doing and what you want to learn more about because this episode came to be based on someone else's suggestion it was actually a past guest Uh, either way it's wonderful and we love to hear your suggestions and we will definitely do our best to highlight those also be sure to follow us on facebook at she goes outdoors and keep us in the loop about all the cool things you're doing i will pass on your pictures of carry on but if you have a cool bucket full of beetles be sure to tag us in that and post it on the page that'll be super sweet 
Anything else I'm forgetting, Julia? Oh, be sure to check out boxes and our website at sgooutdoors.com. We've got boxes available for the backpacking box and also the uh, shooting range box. So get on that. We'll see you outdoors.